Welcome you all, this is Anna speaking. And this is Jorge speaking, and you're listening to Literary Tea Podcast. This is the first episode of our thirdly trilogy called Resistant Rainbow. And today's episode is called How New is the Old Gayhood? So, Jorge, um, do you think homosexuality was very common in ancient Greek? Well, Anna, I think it's nice to talk about this because we can say that we can say that an answer to that is yes and no, and much more no than yes, because when we talk about homosexuality, at least today, uh, the idea, we, we already have a very well-built idea of what homosexuality is, especially now that we're talking about it on 2021. We also have all this background of the gay rights movement and banana, and all this makes a great fuzz of different ideas of what is homosexuality. But when we talk about uh, what would be what we consider homosexuality in ancient Greece, uh, we say that it's better to talk about homoerotic relations, you know? Mm, so, um, basically, uh, it, it, I mean, it's not, it's not a thing that you can say that it didn't exist back then, but it was different, right? Yeah, same-sex relations, they have existed, you know, they existed in all societies from every different uh, age, but with different uh, aspects from what we see today. So, how, for example, ancient Greece, how would be uh, a homoerotic relation, for example? I mean, how would people see and conceive and accept this in, in, in ancient Greece? Right. So, first, it's important to uh, bear in mind that there was not the idea of heterosexuality and homosexuality, so there was not this distinction as we have today, this binary distinction, we didn't have that back then. And uh, we also have to bear in mind that the Greek, uh, the Greek civilizations, they were not um, the same. Each uh, city was not the same and they had differences, but if we talk about Athens, which is, let's say, uh, most well-known, the reference. Yeah, most known one, and the one from which we have the, the most known philosophers and so on. And so let's take Athens, for example. There, uh, we have what we call pederasty, or which was a system uh, in which we had uh, a young boy from the age of 12 to 18, he was, he was uh, taken by a man, an adult man, uh, to take classes and to discuss philosophy, to learn art, uh, culture, and they also had sexual relations. This, this was the, the, the system of pederasty. So we had this young man, this young boy, which was called the Eromenus, and the old man 
older man, the adult man, which was called the Erastes, and they shared sexual relationships. Well, the, the boy was always what we call today the passive, the passive part of the relation, or more uh, popularly speaking, the bottom, and the, the, the adult male, the top, or the active in the relationship, always, always. It was not well seen, it was not uh, good for the image of an adult, free uh, citizen uh, of Athens to be seen as in the bottom position. It was not his position, because his position of active, of top, also held the idea of knowledge, of respect, of honor and virtue. So they shared these relationships. And then, when the young male, the young boy, reached the age of 18, 19, he could marry and lead a heterosexual life, as we can conceive more also nowadays. So the, the passive one, the younger one, it's like the passive has this, this idea or this image of someone who is learning, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He was learning. He was learning philosophy, art, culture, and that was the function of the, of the pederastic relation. It was a didactic, educational one. This is, this is important to say because sometimes we, when we talk about homoerotic or homosexuality, uh, it's, it's almost a common sense to only have in mind the idea of sex, sex for itself. But in this case, considering the society at that time, we are talking about something that goes beyond the sexual relation, right? We are talking about uh, a didactic uh, situation, as you mentioned. We are talking about uh, someone that, like the teacher and the student, you know, we, we can use this image here. The one that receives, the one that passes the knowledge. It's nice that you mentioned this because, um, yes, it is something beyond only the sexual act and also it was something beyond affection. Right? Uh, probably we shouldn't also take them uh, or call them homoaffective relationships, even though they existed. You know, they were not only led by desire, because the idea of homoerotic uh, leads us to think much more of desire than love or affection as we understand today. But the relationship of the Eromenos and the Erastes shouldn't be based on uh, exclusively on effect. It was much more a respectful one. Mm -hmm. And, okay, when we talk about Greece, we always make a relation almost instantly with Rome, ancient Rome too, because Rome, uh, we, as we know, um, stole? <laughs> stole some cultural aspects and are copied some cultural aspects from the ancient Greece, they copied also the, these uh, social practices of homoerotic? 
Well, in the case of Rome, uh, there were some differences because the, the, the social and political organization of Rome was quite different from the Greek ones, even though they shared similarities in terms of literature, in terms of culture, uh, in terms of religion, uh, mythology, but they had different uh, social and cultural and political aspects. So, for example, uh, in Greece, as you take Athens, for example, we have the pederastic uh, system of, of relationship between two men. And these uh, erastes and eromenos that I talked earlier, they were always from the same uh, social class. Whereas in Rome, uh, this relationship, this male-male relationship, uh, was shared usually between a free citizen, man, right, and a slave. Mm. So, for example, uh, a free man, a citizen, could have a slave with, with whom he would share sexual relations, you know, le legally. It was not uh, prohibited. But if two men, let's say, uh, from the same social class, two free men from the same social class, they shared sexual relationships, they were not uh, well seen, it was not okay, because what mattered in Rome was the idea of submission. Power. Because, yeah, power submission. The, the, the place to be submissive is the place of the slave. So if two, so if, if two uh, free citizens of Rome uh, was, were known to share a sexual relationship, uh, one of them would not be uh, well regarded because he would be taking the place of the slave, a place of submission, the place of the bottom of the, of the passive. So if you were a free, free man and from a, a, a high class, being a passive would be a symbol of like how can I say, you were like denying your own spot in society, right? Yeah, and even more, your, your own masculinity, because they valued the, the body, the, the image of masculinity, the virtue and all that, and all that. It is known that instead of the Greek pederasty, in Rome they had brothels, in which there were young boys to play the role of bottom and top passive or active for those who wanted to, you know, to share these relationships. But they were not really uh, effective relationships. They were, they were strictly sexual in this sense. So that's something that it's in common with the ancient Greece, right? right? Yes. No. They shared this difference. I mean, not that it didn't exist, like you said, but it was not the focus. The focus was, in this case, the situation of submission and power. Whereas in the ancient Greece, it, it was a situation of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, we, we can see some things in common. And we also can see that um, even, even being uh, social uh, concepts, a bit different from one society than another what what they are in common for me at least with you talking about this is that they were 
incorporated, you know, they were not wrong. You, you, you didn't even mention this notion of being wrong. It was common, it was incorporated in, the, in that society. Of course, with some rules, but it's not wrong. As we sometimes see today, not today exactly, in 2021, but like 50, 100 years ago, this idea of right and wrong was more present, was more common, and this is not happening here, with you talking about these two societies that they are basically the, the base of modern, modern societies, modern rules, I mean, modern laws, ideas of politics. Yeah, sure. And uh, we can also say that, for example, uh, we, we had in Greece, we're talking about Athens, but Sparta also, in Sparta there was also this these uh, same-sex relationships between men, but they were somehow different from Athens, because you know that in Athens we had this valuing of of philosophy, of art and culture. In Sparta, no, the, 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 the men were trained for the battlefield, right? Yes, yes. So there, there these same-sex relationships between men, they used to happen in the military forces. No. So oh, yes. uh, since the since boys, you know, started their training very early in a very early age. I don't know how exactly. I don't know exactly how at, at which age they started their military training, but it was very early in life as a child. Yeah, I think it was a child. I think twelve, thirteen. And they had to, you know, they spent most of their time, most of their upbringing in the military forces trained for the battlefield so they shared they usually shared a partner uh, among the soldiers among the roman soldiers not roman sorry the greek spartan soldiers and it was also something valued you know to battle for someone in a war like to protect your your partner. romantic partner which is also a soldier alongside with you it's like an honor, right? Yeah, and you're gonna see this in some examples from literature. Mm. But uh, before we go to these examples, uh, what about what comes after the the ancient Greece, ancient Rome, that is Middle Age? What can we say about it? Did it change the the concept of homoerotic relations? Well. Uh, we can say that the idea or the concept of what what was considered to be sex, right, changed. Uh, you know, we know that there have always been there has always been uh, men that were attracted to men and women attracted to women. But in the medieval period, in the Middle Ages, uh, we can say that these relationships they were not, at first, not so persecuted and condemned. But that they're not also well seen. They were not considered to be uh, natural, mm -hmm. right? Because so, now the base of of society is the Bible, right? Yeah. When we when Rome begins to get uh, Christianized, if we can say it like this, especially 
actually after Constantine, the, the, the emperor, uh, when he adheres to Christianism and also the later emperors that come until the fall of Rome, uh, the will of God or what is natural according to God is what rules everything and this goes on up to the Middle Ages, you know, it continues, mm -hmm. right? So these same-sex relationships, they start to be uh, not considered to be natural, especially, especially to the social order, because sex uh, started to be seen only as something to procreate. procreate. Yeah. yeah. And there was not, again, the idea of sexual orientation. So they thought of they thought about the idea of different sex acts. Also, we have uh, the, the roles played by people in the sex and intercourse, they were considered to be active or passive. Again, this idea remains, but the, the, the active position is the man. It's the man's. Yeah, and now the, it, it's more related to... If, if we can say like this a biology situation, it's uh, um, the, the active now, it's not the one that has um, knowledge or power, but the one that penetrates. Right. And passive, and the was the passive one, always. So, uh, the man's role always was to be active and to penetrate. So, if a man was caught uh, doing a non-procreative sex, which is called sodomy, right? Uh, he would uh, be persecuted, he would suffer some punishment at the time. Um, and uh, sodomy was considered at the time to be a non-procreative sex or the anal sex between two men. And why was it why was it wrong? Because the procreative sex was virtuous due to pregnancy. Yeah. If I use so, sex to procreate, I'm thinking about um, creating life. Therefore, I'm continuing the God's plans with the human race. Perfect. So in this sense, we have uh, male male sex. It was still considered sex, but sodomy, because not, it was not non-procreative, it was not right. And in the case of women, do you know how it was considered, like, lesbian sex? I think that it was not, it was not even considered sex, because they, they were, they were not, there was not penetration, so... Uh, the, the, really, the idea or the image of penetration was very strong, because basically, it, this is what defines the act. So women, uh, lesbians having having uh, sexual relations, it was not even sex. Right. Sorry, lesbians. Just kidding. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but at least, at least there are less registers of punishment for sexual for lesbian sex than for sodomy, yeah. which was the male male sex. What about the the East, George? Do you know any any practices? Because we are just talking about the the West perspective until now. But what about the East? Do you know? 
I've always known very little of Eastern culture in general, right? But a few days ago, I watched a video on YouTube, and we're gonna we're gonna let it available for you in the description later, right? Uh, for this episode, but I I, wrote, I saw that during the feudal period of Japan, there was what we can consider same-sex acts, but it was something like this: we had the samurais, right? in the history of Japan, and these warriors, they could maintain, they could keep uh, sexual relations with uh, men, but these men, they were not considered a man like we had at the time. For example, there was almost a third gender, so we had men, women, and wakashu. Wakashu was the, were these young boys which uh, they were necessarily teenagers, youngsters, right? So it was also a almost like a period of life between, uh, beyond being a third gender, it was also like a period, period of life. So we had child, wakashu, adulthood. Mm -hmm. And these boys, they dressed uh, in, in specific clothes and they had a different hairstyle, different hair cutting that identified them as wakashu. And the, the samurais would have relations with them and also teach them uh, the codes of honor, uh, which was also called the action, the act of shudo. Mm -hmm. But this is basically what I know about wakashu. And when they became adults, they would, would stop being wakashu and they would marry a woman, which would seem to be the right thing to do. But uh, what is interesting about Wakashu is that men could have relationships with them and also women. Oh, that's why, that's why you, you mentioned a third gender. Yeah, it was almost considered like a third gender. I see. At the time. I think that a good way to look at different social perspectives and uh, aspects of different societies and civilizations is to look at literature mm -hmm. because it always mirrors or exemplifies something of real life, yes. of reality. And when we talk about sexual relationships or romantic relationships, uh, marital status of the time, uh, it is not different. So. We, we have some examples, we brought to you some examples from uh, Greece, Greek and um, Roman literature to talk about. And one of them that I would like to mention to start with is the myth of Nisus and Ereus. Well, I think Anna read this myth. What did you think about it, Anna? I, uh... First, because if it is a, an epic poem, it has a kind of narrative, right? Um, yeah. Very descriptive, very um, enormous, as you can say like this, for the acts of the characters. Um, 
the beauty of the thing, you know, the Greeks liked that. Uh, but speaking about these two characters specifically, it, it is more represented as um, a, an affection, you know, it's not, it's not so explicit, that, that's what I mean. It's not so explicit that they have a relation and that is a homoerotic relation. It's kind of, it's kind of poetic, you know. I don't know if you have the same impression, but for me, it's, it's like it's not, it's not that obvious that they 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 are, they are a couple. Yeah, I don't think that we can all we we can actually say that they were a couple. I don't think so. Well, at least I don't like to say that there is between them a homoerotic relationship. If we could, if we could take. The, the prefix homo, I would add it to affective. Like, we can see that there is an affection between them both. And they are depicted as friends. But what makes us think about them as they're having a, an affair or that or they're being very, very close at this point is because of the reaction of Nisus when Aurelius is killed. The same happens uh, between Patroclus and Achilles. And, but what is interesting is that, is that if we take the, the, the context of the, of the military forces in Sparta, as you mentioned in the first part of this episode, that it was common for warriors uh, to have partners and to have uh, this person to count with, to protect, to fight for, we can see this example in Nisu and Aurelius because of the fact that they sacrifice one sacrifice for the life of the other. That they basically—it's a tragic story—and we find it on the at the Aeneas, Aeneid, which is a epic poem written by Virgil to to praise the Roman uh, the Roman Republic at the time and there is in one scene of a battle in which Nisus and Aerios they have they play a role as a as military young men and in some point one of them is is attacked Aerios is attacked and Nisus tries to save him but by doing so he is also uh, killed assassinated he gets mad when he sees that Aurelius was taken. So, uh, by his reaction and by the description of their bonds, of their bond, the friendship, romantic friendship bond, I don't know, uh, we can say, we can infer that there is some homoerotic or homoaffective mm -hmm. uh, relationship between them two. And again, what about um, middle age? How how is it poss even possible to have um, a homoerotic literature if we have if we are not now talking about a time that um, morality was ruling everything? 
Well, when it comes to the Middle Ages, well, we don't have the same treatment of homoerotic literature as we had in ancient Greece and Rome, because there, there was, you know, even though, even though it was not in the sense that we understand homosexual, homosexual uh, relations today, but there was the same-sex relationships that were uh, legal under some rules, and during the Middle Ages they were not. So what we have basically, at least from the research that I've done, uh, we can see some uh, literary of, uh, examples through documents such as letters or journals, uh, and these letters sometimes they are addressed from uh, uh, an older man, an adult man to a young boy. So this pattern sometimes uh, kind of, kind of, uh, kind of is kept. It is also kept this idea of uh, an adult man and a young boy. But in in this context now, we are talking about uh, these two men. They normally were from the religious uh, group, right? We have we still have this today. These relationships between men from the church, but it was it was much more uh, depicted at that time. It was much more. Um, it happened much more frequently, especially in the higher positions of the Catholic Church. And also it was sometimes, so these relationships, they were kind of veiled, you know. Uh, but when two priests were caught on sex, on same-sex acts, they uh, also were punished. No, but their punishment was not really a punishment. They just had to live in a monastery, you know. Yeah, they would have to retire to spend the rest of their lives in a monastery. But uh, what kind of punishment is this when in a monastery, uh, the monasteries were full of other men? That's the question. Yeah. Whereas... Uh, the... Punishment or blessing? Yeah, punishment or blessing. That is something, something like that. You know, you know, this was the punishment for people of the clergy. And if a normal, normal, not normal, but yeah, normal, let's say normal, or a low-class citizen was taken uh, in same-sex acts, they had to pay, they had to pay a, uh, a tax, something like a tax, you know, to, to be absolved of their sinful act, something like that. Or they could be castrated too, if they didn't have the money to pay for their sin. So yeah, we'd like to read to you, uh, you know, some part of a letter which was written by Marbot of Rheims to his young lover. So Marbot of Rheims was born at Angers in France, where he was first a student, then a teacher, and finally in 1067 a master at the cathedral school. And in 1096, he became Bishop of Rheims, Britain. So you see that it was a bishop, you know, uh, from the Catholic clergy, and he held uh, a supposed relationship to a young lover. And he wrote this letter to this young lover, and the letter reads like this. Hor Horace composed a note about a certain boy who could easily enough have been a pretty girl. Over his ivory neck, flowered hair, 
brighter than yellow gold, the kind I have always loved. His forehead was white as snow, his luminous eyes black as pitch, his unflapped cheeks full of pleasing sweetness when they gleamed bright white and red. His mouth was straight, lips blazing, teeth lovely, chin shaped after a perfectly proportioned model. Anyone wondering about the body which lay hidden under his clothes would be gratified, for the boy's body matched his face. The sight of his face, radiant and full of beauty, kindled the observer's heart with the torture of love. But this boy, so beautiful, so extraordinary, an enticement to anyone catching sight of him, nature had molded wild and stern. He would sooner die than consent to love, rough and thankless, like a tiger cub. He only laughed at the gentlest words of a suitor, laughed at a sighing lover's tears. He mocked those he himself caused to die. Wicked indeed, this one, and as cruel as wicked, who with this vice in his character, keeps his body from being his glory. A handsome face demands a good mind, and a yielding one, not puffed up but ready for anything. The little flower of youth is fleeting and too brief. It soon, it soon withdraws, falls, and knows not how to revive. This flesh is now so smooth, so milky, so unblemished, so good, so handsome, so slipper, so tender. Yet the time will come when it will become ugly and rough, when this flesh, dear boyish flesh, will become worthless. Therefore, while you flower, take up riper practices. While you are in demand and able, be not as slow to yield to an eager lover. For this you will be prized, not made less of. These words of my Rex, most beloved, are sent to you alone. Do not show them to many others. So, by this letter, we see how affectionate it was and how explicit too. He praises the boy's body, the boy's face, his attributes, and apparently the boy was not actually very corresponding to him. And we see something similar in uh, Virgil's Eclogos, which is a series of also lyrical poems that uh, in one of them, I think it is in the Eclogue 2, there is a depiction of a of uh, a man who also loves a boy who is not who does not correspond to him, even though he uh, praises all his attributes as well. Yeah, and we also found um, speaking about now literature itself that is we found a poem from 1178 that describes the lesbian sex and as we mentioned in the first part of this episode uh, lesbian sex was sometimes not even considered sexual practice because uh, there was no there was no penetration and the poem says these ladies have made up a game with two bits of nonsense, they make nothing. They bang coffin against coffin without a poker stir up their fire. They don't play at poke in the punch, but join shield to shield without a lens. 
They have no concern for a beam in their scales, nor a handle in their mode. Out of water they fish for turbot, and they have no need for a rod. They don't bother with a pestle in their mortar, nor a fulcrum for their seesaw. So in this little poem, we can, there are a lot of things that confirm what was the social perception of, of lesbian sex. Um, first, they treat this as a game. So they, it, maybe it is, it's a, a message that it was not taken seriously, uh, this kind of sexual practice. And also, uh, as a symbol, as a metaphor for the, the image of, of the, the sexual relation itself, they compare, this, this poet compare the, this, this image as a shield against shields. So you can see that even the sexual practice was uh, related to to manhood, because what did men do at that time? They they went to battlefields to fight, and how can you fight only with shields and no sword? So this image for me caught my attention a lot because it's like you cannot fight with only a shield. Where is the sword? It means where is the penetration in this sexual relation, you know? And it's interesting. It's very short. We don't know who, who wrote, but uh, it's very... It, it mirrors a lot. Uh, lesbian sex specifically. So we discussed that there are some differences in how socially, um, how homoerotic is socially conceived and how it is literary conceived. And um, socially, it was more, it happened. Whereas when you go to literature, we have some uh, situations that either make the represented the, the homoerotic relations very subtle as an age as you mentioned George but we also have and we also have some that were very intimate but not published as the love letters and we had uh, literature per se that is the, the poem that we read but it was not um, a kind situation. It was very critical. This poem that we just read, it's basically criticizing that uh, lesbian sex is not a sexual practice. It's not natural and it's not right. But uh, thinking about these documents and literary works, how do you think, Jorge, they were accessed in the past? Or even were they available in the past? Were they forgotten? Were they intentionally erased?
Well, uh, at least in Greece, you know, Greece and Rome, they could be available because uh, these uh, these sexual relations or these homoerotic or homoaffective depictments, they were natural in this sense, in some sense. So they were not something to be hidden. And when it, when it comes to the Middle Age, that changes because it becomes uh, not legitimate. So it is something to be erased or hidden. So we may say that a lot was erased in history when it comes to these works, especially from ideological aspects of scholars themselves. And also because uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, some of them were lost because the lack of registering, right? Because the, the, the massive registering of literary works and printed works in general, they, they started to happen after the invention of the printing, the, the printing machines. Before then, uh, the writing was much more difficult to be kept, to be registered. But we also have, we, we didn't talk about it in this episode, but we also have uh, images, you know, and paintings that um, depicted and showed homoerotic uh, images, homoerotic relations. Yeah, this, this week we published in our Instagram page a, a famous sculpture, right? Um, um, representing or portraying this couple that we talked about, Niso and Irelis, um, but it was sculptured by uh, um, someone in the um, in the nineteenth century, I guess the eighteenth, nineteenth century. So it's not it's not the case. It's it's not an example of these images that you mentioned, right? I think you are mentioning images from the Middle Age itself. Yeah, because uh, oh yeah, uh, in the Middle Ages we had a lot of what we call bestiaries, you know, they depicted images of beasts, monsters, and sometimes uh, some animals represented male-male uh, sex acts, and they were presented in these bestiaries, in the, in the bestiology works. So we still have them today, they were kept. Yeah, and we also, uh, when we were studying again, when we were collecting information to this episode, we saw that sometimes it's not that the work is forgotten or erased in time, they sometimes they are found and they are studied by scholars. But as we are humans and we are um, a pack of ideologies, uh, conceptions of life, conceptions of, of everything, we may be influenced by these aspects when we are making an interpretation of something. And some scholars, they, they didn't actually mention or analyze these possible homoerotic situations in these works because of prejudice, not because they, they didn't know, they, they didn't want to see, they didn't want to talk about it because 
um, as we are discussing more in the other episodes, in the, in the other parts of this lit trilogy, uh, by the modern age, more or less, uh, we have now this notion of right and wrong. So this is wrong. So we don't talk about what is wrong. What is wrong is forbidden. What you say is so interesting because uh, I remember now that most of these homoerotic examples that we have from ancient Greece and Rome, they are considered by some scholars as some friendship or for example, we have Nisus and Aurelius, then we have Patroclus and Achilles, depicted in the Iliad by Homer. And some scholars just say that Patroclus and Achilles, they were comrades. When Achilles made a, an enormous fuss, he was like completely enraged because of the death of Patroclus. We can consider of course, analyzing some other elements and so on, that it was not only a simple or any friendship or a camaraderie that they had. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, this only proves that everything that comes to us, that arrives actually in our hands today, is not the, the work itself, right? Yeah. We cannot be that and naive. <laughs> exactly. We cannot, we cannot commit uh, anachronisms, of course, as we've been uh, taking this care when we, when we were elaborating and recording this episode. But we cannot be naive, as you mentioned. And talking about works, uh, we will be publishing along this month of May uh, some elements or some curiosities on homoerotic culture, homoerotic Greek and Roman examples, so that you can have a better overview of other examples. Yeah, and just to, just to remind you guys, we are um, preparing a, a drive paste, a drive file actually, uh, with all the the references that we are using with these episodes. So we did this with uh, Lyrical Voices, Frozen Flowers and Resistant Rainbow also will we'll also have um, uh, a drive file free with some PDFs for whoever wants to read more or get to know more about these things that we are talking here. Yeah, please make sure to check our drive files because we don't like we don't take these for these informations out of nothing. <laughs> They're not spoken out of the blue. We really study to prepare the podcast, prepare the episodes, and as I mentioned, you can you're gonna find a lot of references of what we used for the for the episodes. Because here we somehow summarize them, but there you can you know go deeper in some discussions when you see the references. This was the first part of our lit trilogy Resistant Rainbow, called How New is the Old Gayhood? Stay tuned to part two to join us in this series. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at lit.podcast to know more about our projects. See y'all on the second episode of Resistant Rainbow.